All right, let's, let's seek God. Lord, thank you for your holy word. It's such a privilege to be able to stand before your people and open it and do my best to explain. I pray, Lord, if in any way I'm missing the scripture that you would just hide that from your people and shed light. Show them truth, Lord. Help them as your, your flock to hear you today and to follow you. So we just depend upon you completely, O Holy Spirit, to be the master teacher. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, let's look at Romans 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now please remember how the apostle began chapter 9. In verse 3 he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Now why would Paul even say that? Why would he say, I could wish that the Jews, well no, I could wish that I were accursed from Christ and that I were separated from Christ. And I believe the reason is because he knows that the Jews are. They're cursed and they're separated from Christ. And because Paul loves them so deeply, it's as though he's saying, I'm willing to trade places if that were even possible because I love them so much and I want them to be saved. Now we know that the Jews were not saved because in chapter 10 verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So the Jews, the majority of the Jews in Paul's day were not saved. They had not received salvation. Many Gentiles had, a few Jews had, but the bulk, the mass of the Jewish people had rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Even though they had all kinds of privileges, and Paul spells those out for us in verse 4 and 5 of chapter 9. He says, to whom belong the adoption of sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Who is over all, God, blessed forever. Amen. So from them came the Messiah, who is both man and God at the same time. They had all these spiritual privileges, but yet they weren't saved. And so what he's saying is that the unbelieving Jews in his day were in exactly the same position as unbelieving Gentiles were. Just because God had chosen the Jews in the Old Testament to be his covenant people does not mean that he had bestowed salvation on every single physical descendant of Abraham. 
Now, the question that we're trying to solve today is why isn't Israel saved? The first answer Paul gives in chapter 9 is because of the sovereignty of God. That's his first answer. And he gives that answer in verses 6 to 29. He says that God is forming a true Israel and that God himself is sovereignly including some to be part of that true Israel. God chose Isaac, but he passed over Ishmael. God chose Jacob, but he passed over Esau. The Lord has mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he hardens whom he will harden. God is like a potter, forming lumps of clay into various vessels, vessels of honor or vessels of dishonor, vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, or vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And who are those vessels of mercy? Verse 24 says they are the ones that God is calling, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So the ones that God calls are the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So the first answer is that God has not chosen to save every physical descendant of Abraham. That's why not all Israelites were coming to Christ in Paul's day. But now he gives the second answer. And the second answer is completely different than the first. The second answer is that they are to blame. He puts the emphasis not on God's sovereignty but on man's responsibility starting in chapter 9 verse 30 and going through chapter 10, the rest of that chapter. Paul points to the failure of the Jews as the reason why they're not being saved. And he points out four things in these verses. The Jews sought righteousness by works. The Jews stumbled over Jesus Christ. The Jews had a zeal for God not according to knowledge. And the Jews refused to submit to the righteousness of God. And they were to blame in all four areas. And so, not only can you look to the sovereignty of God as a reason why the Jews were not being saved, but you can look to the failure of the Jews themselves as why they were not being saved. Now, so is what Paul is saying here about human responsibility, does that negate everything he just said about God's sovereignty in chapter 9? No. <laughs> no. It isn't a case of either or. The Jews are not being saved either because God is sovereign or because of their own failures. No, it's really a case of both and. The Jews are not being saved both because God is sovereign and because of their own failure. It's like a coin that's got two sides to it. And you flip it over and you see one side, you flip it this way, you see the other. And the Bible will show us pictures of human responsibility at times and it'll show us pictures of divine sovereignty at other times. So why is anybody saved? Let's just back up to that question. Why is anybody ever saved? Well, because God unconditionally elects them to salvation. That's the message of chapter 9. That's true. But it's also true from chapter 9 verse 30 that they must attain the righteousness which is by faith. They must attain the righteousness which is by faith in order to be saved. Now, what does it mean to attain righteousness? It's talking about the doctrine of justification, which we've spent weeks and weeks and weeks really trying to nail down, because it's such an important teaching in Scripture. Justification means that God declares the believing sinner righteous for Christ's sake. It's not that he actually is righteous in every area of his life yet, 
He's not. He still sins. But God looks at him and declares him to be in his son. So the very righteousness of Christ covers him and God sees him through the lenses, the glasses of Jesus Christ and sees a perfect righteousness covering him. Because he trusts in Jesus. So the first way that anybody is ever saved is because God has unconditionally chosen him from before the foundation of the world to be saved. But it's also true that that person must come to faith. You see, the doctrine of unconditional election doesn't save anybody. There are probably millions of people walking the earth right now that have been unconditionally chosen to salvation before the foundation of the world that are not yet saved. So just because God has chosen them doesn't mean See, election does not equal present salvation. It guarantees salvation. It marks certain individuals out for salvation, but something else must happen before they actually experience salvation from sin. And what is that? Faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us in Romans 5.1, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith... Now there are some Christians that teach a doctrine of eternal justification, but I don't believe that's a biblical truth. They teach that because God has chosen someone from eternity, that they have always been justified from all eternity. But the Bible says we're justified by faith, not by from eternity. And the people who teach eternal justification are usually hyper-Calvinistic, meaning they, they reject the responsibility of man as taught in Scripture. So we, we need to walk the narrow road here and not fall into the pit on either side. So unconditional election marks people out for salvation but they still must attain righteousness by believing in the Son of God. So we need to learn from this something. We need to learn never to pit divine sovereignty against human responsibility as though they were enemies. Someone asked Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher in London, in the 1800s, they asked him, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty with human responsibility? And he gave a classic answer. He said, I never have to reconcile friends. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. So, now he could not have told you exactly how they, they <laughs> work together, because I don't think anybody can tell you that, but he didn't worry about it. Spurgeon didn't worry about it. He, when he saw responsibility in Scripture, he preached responsibility. When he saw divine sovereignty, he preached divine sovereignty, and he just let God worry about how those things matched up. And I think that's good. That's a good example for us. So today we're going to look at human responsibility concerning the question, why isn't Israel saved? And there's four reasons that we're going to see in this text. Number one, because they sought righteousness by works. Look at verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? So he's asking the same question that we're asking today. Why didn't these Jews attain righteousness? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. That's the first reason he gives. They did not pursue it by faith. Now, verse 30, he tells us about the condition of the Gentiles in his own day. 
He said that, and this is really ironical because he says that the Gentiles weren't pursuing righteousness, but they attained it. And the Jews were pursuing righteousness, but they did not attain it. Why not? Because when the gospel was preached to the Gentiles, they gladly received it by faith. And when the gospel was preached to the Jews, they spurned it and they rejected it. Because they didn't like the, the message that they had to come as helpless, desperate, blind and dead sinners to depend totally and completely on God to save them. They wanted to have something of their own that they could contribute to feel good about what they had done to receive the salvation. But the Gentiles didn't have anything that they could bring to God. <laughs> the Gentile cities were centers of vice and superstition and idolatry. And when Paul and the other missionaries would go to these cities and preach, 1 Thessalonians says that they turned from sin, they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. So many more Gentiles were coming to faith than Jews were. And in fact, Paul tells us something very similar when we get to chapter 10, verse 20 and 21. He says, Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. Who was it that wasn't seeking God and asking for God? That was the Gentiles, not the Jews. That was the Gentiles. But as for Isaiah, I mean, I'm sorry, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long, I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. So here are the Gentiles. They're finding God and they're not even looking for Him. They are understanding a manifestation of God and they're not asking for it. But God's holding out His hands to the Jewish people all day long saying, come, here is salvation, come and believe, turn from your sin and, be, and believe in my son. And it says they're a disobedient and an obstinate people. So the Jews who had the law and had the privileges and had the revelation were not being saved and Gentiles who didn't have any of those privileges were. Okay, the condition of the Jews now. Look at verse 31. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. They were pursuing righteousness with God. What does the scripture say here? On what basis? But as though it were by works. Israel pursuing a law of righteousness. I think what that means is they were pursuing obedience to the law which they believed would enable them to attain a righteous standing with God. It's a law of righteousness. They sought the law. They, the Jews basically believed that if you had the law and you made every attempt to obey it, then God would count you righteous. But the problem with that is that God has a perfect standard of righteousness and no human being has ever been able to live up to that perfect standard that God has, that he holds out in his law. Now, interestingly, if the Jews had studied their Bibles carefully, they would have discovered that you don't attain righteousness by law-keeping. The Bible has always taught that you attain righteousness or you are justified through faith. 
Habakkuk 2.4 says, But the righteous man shall live by faith. Genesis 15.6 And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right there in the beginning of their Bibles, they saw that the father of their whole nation, the way he was credited righteousness, was through believing God. Or, if we were to go back to the prophets and look at Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6, Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now here the promise of compassion and pardon is held out. But what must the person do to receive God's pardon and God's compassion? Well, it doesn't say he must seek the law, or call upon the law, or obey the law. He is to seek the Lord. He's to call upon the Lord. He's to forsake his way, any of his evil deeds that would keep him from a true relationship with God. He's to leave that behind, and he's to cleave to God. Cleave to his word. Believe him. And so, the message of justification by grace through faith was in the Old Testament scriptures for the Jews to be able to search out and see but by and large they missed it they didn't see it and the Jews couldn't keep that law perfectly Paul has already told us that in the book of Romans in chapter 3 he said in Romans 3.20 by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law cannot justify anyone. There's only one place you can go to find justification, and that's Christ. That's being united to Jesus Christ through faith. Warren Wiersbe has made this statement. I think this is good. He says, The Jews thought that the Gentiles had to come up to Israel's level to be saved. When actually the Jews had to go down to the level of the Gentiles to be saved. Instead of permitting their religious privileges to lead them to Christ, they used these privileges as a substitute for Christ. They were fixating on the privileges, the law especially, and circumcision, as those things that would enable them to stand righteous before God, but they never could. And Paul has told us that in chapter uh, 3. That they depended on the law, they depended on circumcision, and they were still lost. So, the first reason Paul gives as to why Israel isn't saved is because they sought righteousness by works. Folks, never make that mistake. I don't know where all of you stand before the Lord today, but if you have any idea that your own works of any kind will gain you merit and favor to stand before God accepted by Him, destroy those thoughts right now. Because they're completely unbiblical and untrue. It's a lie of Satan. Most people, when they first come to Christ, they have that mentality. And it takes some time sometimes for the Bible to, to beat that out of us. To where we, we just come as helpless sinners to God, depending completely and only upon His grace. Okay, let's look at the second reason. Because they stumbled over Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 9... Verse 32b, the second sentence of that, that verse. It says, They stumbled over the stumbling stone, 
Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now Paul is quoting from Isaiah 28.16 and Isaiah 8.14 and he kind of interestingly blends those two verses together into one statement. If, if you go back and read those two verses, you'll find that what Paul does is he takes the two truths there and he puts them together in one sentence. So he talks about this stone. I lay in Zion a stone. What is he referring to by the stone? I think we intuitively understand who that is, right? It's, it's a person. And we know that because it says, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him, not in it, it's not a literal stone he's talking about, but a person. He who believes in him, who is that stone, will never be disappointed. And when you go over to the book of 1 Peter, and read it, uh, 1 Peter 2.4, it says, as coming to him as to a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God. So we know the stone is Jesus. He is the stumbling stone that they were offended at. See, Christ is either a stepping stone to get to God, or he's a stumbling stone by which you fall on your face. And for most of the Jews, he was a stumbling stone. And for these Gentiles, he was a stepping stone. He was that one that united them back to their God, their creator. So why did the Jews stumble over Jesus Christ instead of seeing him for who he was and coming to God and being saved? Why did they stumble? I think it was because they had certain expectations of who the Messiah was going to be and Jesus didn't fit their expectations. They expected this great military conqueror and they got a suffering servant instead. They expected a lion, they got a lamb. They expected a political leader, they got a spiritual leader. They wanted a throne and God gave them a cross instead. So everything they were looking for and expecting and wanting wasn't there when Jesus came. Because they had understood the scriptures incorrectly and so were anticipating something that God had not really promised. God promised spiritual deliverance and they were looking for political deliverance from the Romans. So there's, here's the irony. The law that the Jews tried so hard to keep all the while was pointing them to Jesus. And think about what was contained in the law. Okay, what was there? The law spoke of the sacrifices that they must keep. It spoke of the priesthood. It spoke of the temple service, all of the religious festivals and the covenants. And all of those things are types that point to Jesus who's the reality. They're just the shadow. All of those animal sacrifices were just the shadow. Jesus is the reality of the perfect and ultimate sacrifice. The Melchizedek priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood all pointed forward to Jesus as the ultimate high priest of his people. The, Jesus is the temple in a spiritual sense. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the religious feasts and festivals, like he's the Passover. He is, you know, the Day of Atonement. Christ is the atoning sacrifice. All of those festivals were shadows looking forward to the reality that when Jesus came, that he would be the fulfillment. He's the one that fulfills all the covenants that God made with his people. So the very law 
that was supposed to be a signpost to point them to Christ, they, they picked up the signpost, put it on the ground and knelt before it and worshipped it, rather than following the signpost to the one they were supposed to find. The law couldn't save anybody. Its purpose was to point to the one who could stay, save them. And instead of believing in that one, they were offended at him. He's not what they wanted. There was a small Jewish remnant who did believe, and Paul says here, they will never be disappointed. But those Jews that did not believe stumbled and fell and will perish if they don't put their faith in Christ. So that's the second reason they stumbled over Jesus Christ. Okay, the third reason he gives is in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 10. It's because they had a zeal for God that was not according to knowledge. Verse 1, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now let's just stop and draw some lessons out of verse 1. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Here's the first lesson I see here. Although Paul believes in unconditional election, it doesn't stop him from praying for lost people. Do you see that? He's praying for them. He desires their salvation and he prays for their salvation even though he knows God hasn't chosen all of them. So if anybody says, you know, you people who believe in predestination and election, why do you even pray? I mean, if God has already decided ahead of time who's going to be saved, what's the use? And you say, well, that's God's business. I don't know how he runs the show up there, but he's told me to pray. <laughs> and I want to pray because I want to see them saved. And Paul would agree with you on that. Paul felt exactly the same way. Paul prayed for lost people even if he, if he knew that not all of them were going to be saved, he still prayed because he loved them. There's an interesting parallel to this, I think, in the book of Jeremiah 29.10 and Daniel chapter 9. Because in Jeremiah 29.10, the prophet Jeremiah says that there are 70 years that are decreed for the people of Israel to have to go into Babylon and be their slaves. And then after those 70 years, God was going to bring them back out. You can read that in, on your own time if you want. Jeremiah 29.10. But in Daniel chapter 9, it says that Daniel discovered from the writings of the prophets how long the people of Israel were going to be in Babylon. And when he saw in the scriptures how long it was going to be, he started counting how long they'd been there. And he, he was excited because he knew the time's almost up. So did he say, well, God's predestined that in 70 years we're going back. So I guess there's nothing I have to do. No, <laughs> he started praying. And Daniel chapter 9 is Daniel's prayer. He confesses the sin of the people. And he says, Lord, it's only righteous for you to send us off into exile into Babylon because of our national sins. But Lord, restore us. Have favor on us. Have mercy on us. In other words, do what you predicted that you were going to do in Jeremiah 29.10. You see how just because God has said he's going to do something doesn't mean you shouldn't pray that God will do what he said he's going to do. You see that? And God said he's going to save a great multitude of people. So let's pray that he does. And because we don't know whom God has chosen, it's okay for you to pray for anybody. God doesn't mind. <laughs> and Paul prayed for all kinds of people, not knowing who was elect. So that's the first lesson I see here. The second lesson I see is 
Notice how Paul speaks about Israel in verse 1. There is a mixture of grace and truth. First grace because he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them. So you see this gracious, loving, concerned spirit on the heart of Paul for the Jews, don't you? His heart's desire is for their salvation. He prays for them. So a very gracious, loving spirit. But on the other hand, there's truth. Because he doesn't sugarcoat the fact that they're not saved. He doesn't say, oh, well, I guess you don't really need to worry about your salvation because you're God's chosen people, by the way, and I wouldn't want to offend you by implying that you're lost. And our problem is, trying to bring those two attributes together in our own lives, we can be all on the side of truth and very little grace, or all on the side of grace and very little truth. Isn't it great that Paul says, uh, speak the truth in love. There's truth and there's love, and we've got to pull those things together in our own lives. Like when you talk to lost people and you witness to them, let them see that you really love them and you care for them. Let them see that. And maybe that means helping them in practical ways to show, hey man, I love you. You're hurting right now. What can I do to help you? So that's gracious, but never, never sugarcoat the truth. Never deny what God says about them just to make it more palatable to them or for fear that you might offend them. Yeah, people will be offended and there's no way you can stop that. Right? If you speak the truth, there's going to be some offense taken. And we need to have a, a, a strong enough backbone, a, a strong enough spine that it doesn't destroy us when someone gets offended at us. That we, we understand they're really rejecting God. They're not rejecting me. They're rejecting His Word. So that's the second thing I see here. Great example for us. Um, now, verse 2. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God but not in accordance with knowledge. It's actually commendable that they had a zeal for God. And Paul knew they had a zeal for God from first-hand experience because Paul himself had a zeal for God. When he was an unsaved Israelite, he was zealous. Philippians 3.6 says, As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. That's how zealous I was. Because I thought they were wrong and I was trying to stamp out Christianity. So he would go from town to town, put people in chains, drag them off. Paul was zealous. And he says, I know that you guys are zealous too. And Jesus himself uh, says over in John 16, verse 2, They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. That literally took place. It was the Jews who were the ones that persecuted Paul and his missionary band whenever they went from one city to the next. It generally wasn't the Gentiles, it was the Jewish people. He would go to the synagogue, he would preach there, and they'd start a riot, or they'd chase him out of town, or they'd pursue them from city to city to see if they could do everything they could to destroy these missionaries and the message that they were preaching. So yes, they had a zeal for God, the problem was it wasn't in accordance with knowledge. He tells us that in chapter 10 verse 3, not knowing about God's righteousness. They were ignorant about how a person could receive salvation. 
they were ignorant about how a person could be justified. They thought they were justified by law keeping. They didn't understand they had to renounce all their own righteousness and come to God as a poor helpless sinner and cry out like the publican and the tax collector. The tax collector cried out, God be merciful to me the sinner. That's the posture of the person who receives justification. It's like a locomotive engine. A locomotive engine is super powerful, isn't it? And it can do a lot of good as long as it stays on the tracks. But if it jumps the tracks, that engine now becomes an, in an instrument of untold destruction because it can take out buildings, wipe out people. Zeal for God is a good thing. In fact, it's a necessary thing in our lives. We need to be zealous for God. But it needs to be in accordance with knowledge. If our zeal is not in accordance with knowledge, it's just going to hurt us and it's going to hurt other people. So we need to be careful about zeal. Make sure that your zeal is in accordance with knowledge. There is a little town in Canada that has four roads leading out of the town. One goes north to the Alaskan Highway. One goes south to the United States. One goes west to the Pacific Coast. And one goes east to the Canadian Rockies. Now let's say someone in that little town in Canada wants to go to the United States. Instead of asking for directions, he says, well, I think I'll make my choice of how to get to the United States based on how pretty the roads are. And so he looks at all four roads and he chooses the one going north because it had the most beautiful trees and mountains. So he heads off as fast as he can in his car, speeding up the, the highway going north. Is he going to make it to the United States? <laughs> No, he's not, because the, the faster he goes and the farther he travels, the further away he gets from his desired destination. And that's the way it is when we have zeal that's not in accordance with knowledge. We're running really hard and really fast, but we're running in the wrong direction, down the wrong path, and we're getting further and further away from God. Folks, do you see how important it is that you know truth? You know, we can be wrong when it comes to a lot of areas of the Bible. But if you're wrong when it comes to who Jesus is and what he's done, what the gospel is, and how you receive the grace of God, if you're wrong on those core issues, you're doomed. You've got to nail it when it comes to the gospel. You've got to know what the gospel is and you've got to come to God's, God's own way that he has prescribed. The Jews are trying to come to God through another way, a roundabout way, that God never prescribed and never allowed. And they were not saved. So, one of my exhortations to you this morning is to be a person of this book. To figure, find the truth. You can't depend on your husband or your wife or your pastor or elders uh, to be the one that, that gives you the truth. You need to know it for yourself. And each one of you need to be taking time in the scriptures. You need to be able to say, I believe that I'm saved because of this verse and this text. And have that text nailed. And, and read it and meditate on it. And memorize the word of God. So that it becomes part of the warp and woof of your life. Like Spurgeon used to say that Bunyan was Bibline. If you pricked him at any point, the Bible comes gushing out of him instead of blood. The Bible just oozes forth from John Bunyan. And it's true if you read any of his writings. 
Let that be said about you. You're Bibline. You are a person of this book. Are you really going to let your eternal salvation lie in the hands of somebody else who you hope is right? That's deadly. Make sure you know for yourself what the gospel is. We can be wrong about whether God gives speaking in tongues today or miracles or what kind of church government is the prescribed form in the Bible or the end times. We can be wrong about those things and make it to heaven, but if you don't get the gospel right, you're not going. You got to get this right. So folks, study the Bible, search it, know for yourself the truth about Christ and his gospel. The Bible says in Proverbs 14:12, 14, 14:12, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. So people who have zeal that is not in accordance with knowledge, they have a way that they think is right, but the end of that way leads to death. Another lesson to learn from this is that a person can have a zeal for God and not be saved. Because Paul says that they did. The Jews had a zeal for God and he says they weren't saved. He's praying for them to be saved, but they weren't. You say, well, how can it be possible that someone could have a zeal for God and not be saved? Well, you see them all over the world in various religions and various types of churches and various, you know, all over the place. People, they, they're bowing down three times a day or six times a day or they're attending this mass or they're giving to the poor here all the while thinking that by these works they're going to attain righteousness with God. They're zealous for it, but they're coming to God on different terms than God has prescribed. So, you can be involved in a false religious system, a false religious cult, zealous, going door to door all day long, hours upon hours every week, thinking that by this, God is going to accept you, and you can be lost. You can even be a member of a good Bible church. You can be a pastor of a Bible church. You can have a zeal for God and still not be saved. Because salvation is a matter of faith in Jesus Christ. Saving faith in a person. Not going through rituals. Not doing certain activities. It's a relationship with Christ the Savior. So we need to be very careful here. We can make lots of mistakes in understanding the Bible and still be saved but we can't get the gospel wrong and still be saved. Second lesson, all roads don't lead to God. The Jews were traveling a road. Were they sincere? Yes. Were they devout? Yes. Were they zealous? You better believe it. Did it lead them to God? No. A lot of people will tell you, it doesn't matter really what you believe, as long as you're just sincere, all those roads will lead to God. Well, they haven't read Romans chapter 10, have they? Because the Jews were traveling a road and they were sincere and it didn't lead them to God. They were lost. So we need to be careful about this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He didn't say, I am one of the ways, I am the way. There's only one way. 
It's very exclusive. And I, we're not being arrogant to point that out to people. We're just telling them what God has said. We're not making this stuff up. <laughs> we're just telling them this is what Jesus himself said. We either believe that or we don't. And he said, I am the way. You've got to come through him. A third takeaway from these verses is that the Jews lacked knowledge, but God still held them responsible. Now, isn't that interesting? It says in verse 3, they lacked knowledge, not knowing about God's righteousness. But God still held them responsible, and they still were not saved. And we might think, well, certainly God will not hold anybody responsible if they don't know something. But the question is, could they have known, and should they have known? In the case of the Jews, they should have, because they had the scriptures. And if they didn't search the scriptures for themselves to find out what the truth was, they are to blame. And God holds them responsible for that. And brothers and sisters, you have the truth. Do you have a Bible? Do you have a phone with a Bible on it? You have access to the truth. If you don't find out what the truth is, God will hold you responsible. Sometimes, you know, we think an officer pulls us over to the side of the road and he says, did you know that you were going 65 miles an hour in a 45 mile an hour zone? And you say, oh my gosh, officer, I didn't know that the speed limit was only 45 miles an hour. Is that going to change his mind so that he drives off and doesn't give you a ticket? No, we are, since we're driving these roads, we're responsible to know how fast we ought to be driving on these roads. And if you're going to approach God, you're responsible to know how God wants you to approach him. And he's told you in scripture. And if you just are too lazy to search the scriptures or apathetic about what God has said to not care to look into it and find out you're to blame and God will hold you responsible on judgment day for that. So that's the third reason here. They, they weren't saved because they had a zeal but it wasn't in accordance with knowledge. And then the fourth reason he gives is because they refused to submit to the righteousness of God. That's the end of verse 3 and verse 4. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now they should have subjected themselves to the righteousness of God. Why didn't they? We're not told. So... This is Brian's speculation. This is my guess. I might be wrong on it. My guess is that they didn't want to come this way because there's no glory in coming that way. A person who depends upon their own self-righteousness usually does it out of pride. They want to be able to boast in or be proud of something that they have done. Nobody likes to be told you are so sinful and so corrupt that there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You need to be saved by another and you need to come exercising faith in him because all of your works are like filthy rags anyway. You need to just trust in Jesus Christ alone. Nobody likes that message because that humbles the sinner. Doesn't it? I don't, we don't like being humbled. By nature we're proud people. But God hates the proud and gives grace to the humble. So I think that's why. Paul has already gone into depth to help us understand the way of salvation back in chapter 3. I think it might be worth just reading again. Uh, Romans 3, 19 to 24. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, 
It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So by the time we get to chapter 3 verse 20, Paul has said you're all lost, and there's nothing you can do by obedience to the law to save yourself. But, he doesn't end there, thankfully. Verse 21, he says, but now. Something new is coming. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, so not man's self-righteousness, this is a divine righteousness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift. You don't buy it. It's a gift. By His grace, not by works. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. So, this is crystal clear here in chapter 3. The Jews were following a way of their own devising when God had made plain that the gospel teaches we come through faith receiving the gift of righteousness from him. Paul had learned this. In Philippians chapter 3 he said that he had learned that he had to take all of his assets and move them to the liabilities column. He had to take all of the profits and move them to the losses column. And he says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 9, that I might be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith you see the righteousness we need doesn't come from us we don't drum it up and, and present it to God as our gift to him Paul says it comes from God Luther called it an alien righteousness because he knew it was a righteousness that came from outside of ourselves and came to us. God gives it. Do you guys, do you, do you get this? Do you, do you grasp it? This is so important. I mean, it's like Christianity 101, but we, you can't move any further in your Christian life till you've nailed this and you've got it down so that you, you know it backwards and forwards. And not just that you know it, but you're trusting it. See, we can subtly believe this in our heads and kind of rely on things that we do to have God's favor. You need to rely completely on God's righteousness that He has given to you in Jesus Christ. See, there's only two kinds of righteousness. There's God's and ours. That's what he says here in Philippians 3.9. There's a divine righteousness and a self-righteousness. The self-righteousness will puff you up with pride the divine righteousness will humble you and the divine righteousness is the only kind that can save any sinner, that can save any soul. Now Paul tells us back in Romans chapter 10 verse 3, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They were unwilling to subject themselves to God's righteousness. They were willing to zealously try to keep the law so they would have something to boast in, something to feel good about themselves, about, <laughs> but 
they were unwilling to just submit themselves to God's own righteousness. And then he says in verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is why it is so damning for a person to seek salvation by law keeping. It's because it dishonors Jesus. Paul said over in Galatians 2.21, If righteousness could have come through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So when you go about in your life trying to be justified by law keeping, keeping the Ten Commandments or whatever law you want to try to keep, you're basically saying what Jesus did is no good. It's, I'm not going to look to that. That's not good enough. I need to do something over here. That's devaluing the work of Christ. It's dishonoring the Son of God. And that's why God will not allow anybody to come any other way other than through Jesus Christ. The Jews in their day, Jesus said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that testify about me. So they were searching the scriptures. Search, 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 search. And they thought, now I'm saved because I'm searching the scriptures. But the scriptures were just a signpost pointing to Jesus. And they didn't come to Jesus, but they searched the scriptures. And professing Christians can make the same mistake. We think that if we read our Bibles and listen to sermons, then we're right with God. But unless you come to the living Christ and believe upon Him and cast your soul upon His mercy, trusting in Him alone, all of that Bible reading and all those sermons you've listened to are valueless. They're worthless. He must become our righteousness. Robert Murray McShane was a godly Presbyterian pastor in the 1800s over in the British Isles and he was once out passing out tracts and one day he handed a tract to a well-dressed lady and she responded with a haughty look and she said, Sir, you must not know who I am. And McShane responded and he said, Madam, there is coming a day of judgment and on that day it will not make any difference who you are. The Jews thought, I'm somebody special. I'm one of God's chosen people. I'm of the chosen nation. And they had this pride in their nationality. But on the Day of Judgment, it's not going to matter if you came from a, a Jewish background, or an African, or an Irish, or any other background on the face of the planet. It doesn't matter. We are all helpless, undone sinners before a holy God and the only way we can approach Him is through Jesus Christ, the way, the mediator that God has provided. So, this is the application I think at the bottom of everything I've tried to say today. Make up your mind today if you've never done it before that Jesus Christ is going to be all your righteousness. That you are not going to depend one thread. <laughs> like if you're spinning yourself a, a garment of righteousness, stop and say, I'm getting rid of my own filthy works, even though they look pretty good to me and other people are pretty impressed by them. God's not impressed. I need to put on His garment of righteousness that He gives freely through His Son. So make up your mind. Back in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, it's one of those great verses where God tells us one of His names and He says in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, 
In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely and this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. That's one of the titles for Jehovah God. Our righteousness. He himself becomes our righteousness. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 this is one of those great passages. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness. By his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us righteousness. Christ became to us righteousness. I know it's hard to know your heart but do your best right now to examine it. What are you trusting in? If God summoned you before himself right now in heaven and asked you why should I allow you into my presence forever do you know the right response and are you trusting in the right response? Because I would say in excess of 90% of the people I ever ask that question to get it right. I mean they get 90% get it wrong at least. Probably more like 95 to 99. They all think that it has that they point to themselves but that tells you they're trusting in a self-righteousness. I go to church. I try to keep the golden rule. I try to love my neighbor as myself. I've got a good heart. God knows I've got a good heart. It's always I, 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 I. It's almost never that you'll say, I don't deserve to be in heaven, but Christ Jesus died for sinners. And my trust is not in me at all. It's in Him. and What He has accomplished for me. So if there's anybody here who might be confused as to how a person can be right with God, may there be no doubt in your mind from now on that it has nothing to do with your own righteousness but Christ's. And trust in Him completely and fully. Cast yourself upon Him and Him alone. Lord Jesus, be our righteousness. And Lord, if if in any way we're starting to get proud of our accomplishments or starting to subtly begin to trust in something that we have done, please convict us of that, that we might repent. Because we don't want to have any false self-righteousness. We want our righteousness to be Christ and Christ alone. Lord, if there's anybody here who has never been justified by faith, we pray you'd work in their hearts and enable them to trust in Jesus Christ right now that Christ you would become his righteousness in Jesus name we pray amen